Welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Const. What a difference a weekend makes. We are now 42 days away from the election, election date, and in the last four days, the entire course of history will undoubtedly be shifted because of the last three days. And in those 42 days, potentially we have less uh, until the election if we see Donald Trump uh, able to ramp up a Supreme Court nomination through the Senate faster than ever before in American history. In every generation, there are moments of choice. And throughout the course of human history, there have been moments of consequence determined by a few moments of choice. How you answer the question, which side are you on, that's what matters. This will stick with you for the rest of your life. This is such a moment. A moment we will look back on history and say, that's when we started to turn turn things around. Around from the fascism that was built in the last four years. Or, this is a moment when we failed to use our hard-fought-for right to vote. Especially for such moments. And it all went badly, badly wrong. Moments when we use our vote as a protection for the most vulnerable in society, to preserve whatever semblance of rights we have right now, free speech, to organize the ACA, to fight against the destruction of our limited path to change, to fight for the ability to expand that path. This is one of those moments. RBG is gone. Her death did not create this moment, but her death has brought brought into stark view what is at stake in this election. On her tiny frame, she carried us a very long way forward. Not perfect, but a long way forward. And now it is on us to carry her work forward and preserve whatever semblance, partial, potential progress in the future over the protection of rights that we have, all for the future. And to set up the future of the Supreme Court through reform, potentially, and maybe even a few seats that we could gain for future generations. That is what is on the line. Neoliberals love saying it's about... It's about the right to choose in that Supreme Court. It is much more right now. It's about fighting fascism. It is about putting up an actual resistance to Trump. And this is the greatest form of resistance, using your hard-earned vote to fight that off, to win the Senate. Remember her dying wish, RBG's dying wish, was that her replacement would be appointed by the next president. That could happen before the election. And the outcome could potentially decide the election If the Biden campaign does not do its job, the Biden campaign, we talked about this in the majority report just a few minutes ago, the Biden campaign made a very conscious decision to appeal to centrist Republican voters. It was a danger because it's not like it was to expand the base. It was essentially in exchange for the base, thinking the base is going to show up in the face of fascism no matter what to fight Trump. 200,000 deaths in America. In the United States, from the effects of COVID, from COVID, that's where we are right now. And, and Biden, in some ways, rightfully thinks that is enough to fight Trump. Trump declaring New York City, Portland, Seattle, anarchist cities so that he can defund those cities, so that he can amp up police, militarized police in those cities and potentially in a neighborhood near you. That is what is on the line right now. Our vote that has been expanded, that has been fought for, with blood, tears, sweat, we know our history. That is our resistance right now. 
It is about fascism. It is about the courts being decided. And if Biden, let me make this very clear, if Biden does not amp up the base and the excitement in the next 42 days, actually even earlier, right now, then it could be so close that the Supreme Court does decide this election. But that is only if it gets that close. David Axelrod said it so well right after 2016, when everyone started throwing out allegations against millennials, against burning supporters, against Russia, whoever it was. And David Axelrod said in, in the days after the election, it should have never been so close. The entire Trump strategy is about slicing away a little bit here, a little bit there, you know, bringing in Kanye into the race and whoever else to try to split up the vote, to sow, to sow confusion and sadness. And what's happening is that every, it's death by a thousand cuts, right? Death by a thousand cuts. If you're confused, if you're angry at the Democrats, it's easier to be angry at the Democrats because we know that space so well because we fought that space for the last, you know, several years. We fought neoliberalism, and that is to Trump's gain because he wants to deplete enthusiasm on the Democratic side. And Joe Biden really is not doing enough to fight back against that right now. So if you want to defeat fascism, it's about enthusiasm. We, we're in a really tough spot with the Senate right now. Let's roll that clip, uh, Dorsey. Can we put that clip up of of, uh, of Mitt Romney and what he announced today? I recognize that we uh, uh, we may have a court which has more of a uh, conservative bent than it's had over the last few decades. But my liberal friends have, over many decades, gotten very used to the idea of having a liberal court, and that's not written in the stars. I recognize. So there you have it, Mitt Romney, who uh, likes to pretend he's, don't forget, this is the Republican nominee in 2012 against Barack Obama, who fought against the Affordable Care Act, even though he passed something similar in Massachusetts. These people do not play by the rules, and we know it. So let's stop pretending like we are fighting people who play by the rules. They are trying to get a conservative justice. And so suddenly, all of those centrist voters who were fighting fascism now see a conservative justice... As, as a path forward with Trump. So Mitt Romney, who, or John Kasich, for all we know, John Kasich, a, a, a conservative, a religious, anti-abortion conservative, may now be siding with the base of the Republican Party because it comes down to a justice. That's what's on the line when Joe Biden decides to sell out progressives and excitement for a few votes. It might be slice and dice on the Republican side. That might be their strategy, but it should not be for us. We really do have to have a big tent. We really do have to have that enthusiasm so that we do not get to a point where judges, justices, conservative justices are determining the outcome of this election. A Supreme Court is determining the outcome of this election. Donald Trump, every time we show up on the streets, Donald Trump now says rule of law, and he's using it as an opportunity to use the power he has to suppress our voices, our vote, our message, and make a statement about us so that he can excite his base. What is Joe Biden doing? This shouldn't be about calling out the Republicans and their hypocrisy. This should be about showing the entire population what is on the line. It is much more, much more now 
about our angry, our anger towards neoliberals. This is about the small path that we have in fighting fascism. But if we don't use our vote, our power, this moment, that path could be eliminated forever. I wish that this was, I wish that this was just, you know, rhetoric and this was a way, and I was using fear tactics, but the reality is, is that if you look at history, these are the moments uh, that it comes down to. So, um, I mean, I really don't know what else to say right now other than the fact that we have to be doing all we can in our power to, you know, people ask me, like, what, what should I do right now? I'm really angry at the Democrats. I feel you. I mean, the Democrats went after, they went after me personally. I personally get it. I am angry too. So I'm using my power right now to make phone calls for people like Marquita Bradshaw in Tennessee, a state that used to be a Democratic state, to get back Al Gore's U.S. Senate seat. You know, some people are making calls for, for people in, uh, who can win back the Senate. Some folks are making calls for DAs. Some folks are calling for state Senate races so that we can fight back gerrymandering as we are in the middle of a census and we're going to have redistricting very soon. We have to use all of the tools available right now because this is about something much, much bigger than our anger at neoliberals, which, let me tell you, if we have a neoliberal in the White House or a neoliberal as coming from a state, New York state, where a neoliberal is our governor, he moves on things because progressives, which he relies on to win, shine a light on his hypocrisy. But that is only because we don't have a Republican as a governor and we have a Democrat. So we have to make sure to preserve the path that we have open for protest. And if you don't feel comfortable making calls for Biden, I hear you make calls for other folks because that will build the excitement. And Biden campaign, if this wasn't a wake-up call to get that base energized and excited and stop focusing on on those unreliable, disloyal Republicans who could shift back over to the Republican Party in one move, then this is that wake-up call. This is the wake-up call. We have a very good show today. I'm excited because uh, we're going to be talking with um, an MMT economist. She is an associate professor of economics at Bard College. Uh, her name is Pavlina Cher Cherneva. She is the author of the book, The Case for a Jobs Guarantee. And later up, we have in our panel, uh, we're going to be talking about the news of the day, Akila Lacey, who is a politics reporter at The Intercept and uh, Napoleon de Legend. He's back. He's back. All right, stick around. We'll be back right after the break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst, and we are very excited because uh, we talk about MMT a lot on our show, and I, I think what excites me about MMT is not just this completely, uh, I mean, it's making, making its way in the mainstream now, but it is about switching perspectives. And I am, I'm really excited that this book has come out. Um, Pavlina Cherneva, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, is an associate professor of economics at Bard College and a research scholar at the Levy Economic Institute in New York. She specializes in modern monetary theory and she's a frequent speaker at central banks on MMT. She's the author of The Case for a Jobs Guarantee. Um, Pavlina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm equally excited to be here. <laughs> so, Pavlina, I, I, I think um, 
let's just start off with, for those who may not be familiar with MMT, what is the idea of MMT? MMT is a perspective that allows us to understand uh, public um, budgeting policy better and just the monetary system. I mean, we start from a simple, simple proposition that the the cash in your pockets, the uh, you know, the currency is a monopoly of the federal government, and so even on the face of it, if if you have a monopoly of what everyone desires, there's no limit to which you can use it, right? You can issue the currency for whatever uh, public purpose um, we have deemed as important. So what we say is that we've got to use the public purse for the public good. And from then, we proceed to understand how the monetary system works, provide some new perspectives, and specifically say, hey, look, this narrative that we've been told for centuries, not centuries, but certainly decades, that we don't have money to pay for uh, the public good is just not true. Now, what I love about the case with jobs guarantee is you're turning this idea into policy. So it's, it's going from being an economic theory to an actual policy that can be passed through uh, Congress, hopefully, <laughs> if we win. So, so let's, um, what is the jobs guarantee? Well, the job guarantee is a very straightforward proposal that if somebody needs work, um, decent, well-paid work, and they've not been able to find it for whatever reason, the public sector has the responsibility to provide it. And it is connected to MMT because for a couple of reasons. And the first is that um, private firms are not in the business of employing everyone. I think that should be intuitive. We see that happening even when we're not in the midst of a pandemic. Um, we understand that the public sector is responsible for unemployment um, and it addresses, it has to address all the fallout from unemployment. And so there is really a straightforward solution. If somebody needs a job, we can provide it. But there is also a little tweak there to the MMT perspective that um, is often ignored and that, you know, the federal government um, imposes taxes. You see, you know, we can't really avoid them. We got to pay license fees, driver's licenses. You know, we've got to pay all sorts of uh, obligations that we can't avoid. Mm -hmm. And so what we say in MMT is we say when there is that kind of obligation in terms of currency that the government controls and the government hasn't provided it adequately so people can make ends meet and just meet the very basics of lives, then the, the public sector has abrogated this important responsibility to use what the, the public purse to allow people to fulfill their non-reciprocal obligations, but also to build a good life. Okay, so is this, maybe I'm not getting this right, but is it essentially, there's there's a potential path for a jobs guarantee, whether it's uh, jobs through the Green New Deal or infrastructure improvements, um, uh, but also a UBI attached to that? Well, it could be. I mean, the job guarantee is somewhat separate from uh, the basic income proposal because it addresses a very particular problem. That rain or shine, we've got people who need work. They would like to work. And it's not just because they lack income. I think this is reasonably well established that, uh, of course, income helps. And many people can, many people's lives can be improved by providing income support, the retired, for example, children, etc. But there is this very specific problem, people seeking work for great many reasons, and um, they are not able to find it. And the public sector at the same time is not, has so many uh, 
so many tasks that go unfulfilled. There are so many gaps in our public services. And so we can really marry these two problems, public squalor, if you will, and folks who are seeking work. And so if the private sector is not in the business of employing everyone, and in the public sector is, then we should be putting our resources, our human potential to solving some specific problems that affect us all in the community. So whether that is environmental cleanup, whether that is um, you know, some infrastructure, care, we can talk about the kind of jobs we, we need, but there's plenty to do. And so that's not the only way we build a good life, obviously. Um, there are many other ways in which we self-determine, we organize our lives. So um, I always say, that the job guarantee needs to be situated uh, within a broader uh, perspective of what a welfare, an adequate welfare support system needs to be. And that would include income support, certainly. Uh, but in the absence of a job guarantee, um, just income support is not enough. Mm. Agreed. Um, so the number one uh, employment uh, job force in America is the health sector. Um, and one of the, the pieces that our, our, our enemies against uh, Medicare for all like to state is, you know, this is why would you want to disrupt the number one employment industry in this country by instituting Medicare for all, which could potentially take years to 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 enable courts uh, being tied up in courts and it would cause a lot of dysfunction, yada, yada, yada. But alternatively, uh, you, what you're saying is it would be more secure, potentially, that, you know, having a Medicare for all system would actually protect these jobs even more. Yeah, I mean, there are so many um, important points in this question. I mean, the first thing is that we have connected uh, healthcare to jobs, and that just on its own needs to be that link has to be severed, and Medicare has to be um, uh, healthcare has to be guaranteed as a basic right. human right. But that argument, you see, it's a pretty powerful argument. You can't reform the healthcare system because jobs will be lost. And you see, we apply this to all sorts of things. You know, you can't remove the fossil fuel producers from our community because that will cause us jobs. We can't shut down the local prison because that will cause us jobs. And you see the jobs, um, uh, the fear of losing one's jobs is always held over our heads uh, and has prevented us from moving forward with reforms that are sensible, that really restructure the economy in a more balanced and sustainable way. So I think that the job guarantee is that promise, that needed piece in the safety net that says, look, we can actually embark on bold structural changes because we have a safety net, because we have put in place this minimum condition that whoever loses employment, they will be secured living wage job in this program. And we will do whatever we can to help them transition to the new economy, to the green economy, to a better, um, uh, yeah, to uh, uh, to better employment opportunities. And but I mean, in the health sector jobs, those are jobs tied to your healthcare. But the health sector is the largest job force in America. So if it and, and you have you know hospitals all over the country being privatized, they're cutting hours, they're not putting benefits in. I mean, we've seen the stories where you have nurses who are taking care of COVID patients and they don't even have insurance themselves. Well, well, I shouldn't say it, not nurses, but healthcare workers, nurses are forced to. Um, it, it, it's it, having it instituted under the government alone, this market alone would put more protections in place so people wouldn't be losing their jobs. Not to mention, as you said, putting folks out there to do cleanups and, and infrastructure support. So what other jobs, uh, you know, are, are you, would be put, what, what, what are like the top tier jobs you think um, should be campaigned on around a jobs guarantee? 
So I think I want to separate first um, the job creation that was necessary to accomplish some very concrete strategic goals. Mm-hmm. So um, we need to put in place large scale infrastructure. We need to do, um, you know, we need to fortify the public sector. I mean, we have uh, gutted it for decades and decades. We have, um, you know, uh, federal agencies that are understaffed, whether it is the CDC, the FDA. I mean, we need to do a lot. The job security goal is to provide transition safety net and employment safety net. And so then the question is, um, what kind of work shall we put folks to do? And so, you know, my preference would be to strengthen the public sector to employ at all levels, at all skill levels as needed. But at the end of the day, we know how market economies work. Folks will still need work and they won't be able, even even what might uh, we might consider you know, uh, lower skill folks, and I really don't like this term very much because low skill folks are extremely essential and they have proven to be um, so critical in this time and they're underpaid and they are undervalued. And so what we need is basically a, a floor that supports their wages. And so what kind of work will we employ folks to do? It will be work in the public for the public purpose. I think green jobs uh, lend themselves very nicely to this program. I think the job guarantee, even from the New Deal era, was a green jobs guarantee. I mean, we did all sorts of conservation um, uh, back then. And now we are trying to breathe a new life in the conservation movement. I mean, I think the conservation movement is actually, uh, has, has done a tremendous amount of work, but breathe a new life in the, the climate um, urgency and so while uh, California is being incinerated and fires are burning on the West Coast, and while we're experiencing floods on ongoing basis in the Midwest and uh, seeing hurricanes, we're actually have experiencing problems that are unattended to. Yeah. So the job guarantee can be that standby, if you will, um, labor force that on uh, on demand can address some of these some of these um, urgent problems. But they can be also small projects, community projects. I think you know. I always ask people, look around. What would you like to see in your community that's not being done? Do you have care needs? Are your kids in need of after school activities? Do we have unemployed teachers? Um, what about the healthcare se- sector? Even though it is the largest employer, as you said, and we are still underpaying healthcare workers. At the same time, we lack some very basic preventative care service. So imagine, you know, we had community health uh, clinics and we would, um, those will be permanent, but imagine if we provided kind of on the job training, folks who could shadow nurses, folks who could shadow teachers, Hmm. who could get the kind of, you know, apprenticeships for young uh, folks. So I think there really isn't a shortage of work that we can do. Um, It's just that our thinking is not there yet, that the public sector has a responsibility has done this quite effectively. We've seen, you know, in our own history, but also around the world. And it's time to kind of embrace the direct solution. Employ the unemployed. So in terms of um, how we, we, we push forward uh, the jobs guarantee through through legislation, I mean, where are we right now? Who, who, who in the Democratic Party is warming up to this idea? I mean, if you recall uh, last year in the um, presidential cycle, there are a number of folks who were talking about the job guarantees, starting with the, you know, my own Senator Kirsten uh, Gillibrand right here. But then there were a number of folks who embraced a form of a job guarantee from Cory Booker to Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders had the boldest, uh, I think, uh, uh, proposal in his platform as part of the green transition. Now today there are still, there, there are some legislative efforts that are, um, that are being made. Um, 
Representative uh, Barney Watson Coleman has a proposal that uh, she's working on, um, and there are others that are in the pipeline. Now, what is encouraging is that people are starting to turn to this to this idea that first, folks who need work, we, there is really no good reason that we cannot provide work. And number two, if folks need work, there is no reason why we should be providing poverty-paying jobs. So if we have a job guarantee, that's the standard. That's the minimum standard that any job uh, needs to meet. So in terms of uh, the politics of the job guarantee, there seems to be appetite also internationally, um, but uh, it is still a little bit on the margins, I have to, I have to admit, though uh, the program has been polled and is very popular. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very popular in the United States. It, has, it was polled recently in the UK. So, um, you know, giving jobs to folks is not, you know, terribly partisan issue. In terms of unions, you have public sector unions. You, you think that they would be very much in favor of a jobs guarantee. Where are they on this? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a little bit of a complicated question. I think that we have, uh, we have had a, some, somewhat um, uh, not tense relationship historically. You know, unions, for example, had mixed feelings about the New Deal. But in the end, right. FDR said, look, we're going to take uh, union input. And we'd like to know, you know, we'd like to support unions. We want to have an economy that offers strong unionized um, uh, jobs. But at the same time, we also want to provide employment relief. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't see these as antagonistic. In fact, I think that we have a common mission. What is union work in conditions of mass unemployment? It's extremely difficult. It is extremely difficult to negotiate the rights of workers when you are faced with the threat of unemployment. And I think uh, on that front, I think that as a baseline scenario, we want all to eradicate unemployment as a perennial feature. On the other hand, I have seen a lot of sympathy and a lot of support today from service unions. Um, and I think the reason is because service sector jobs no longer promise the kind of well-paid manufacturing jobs that we once saw. And so we need to find another uh, structural solution for um, this precarity in the labor market and the and the job guarantee is this other policy tool that we haven't really employed for a long time that says hey every single single person is going to have a basic job with basic benefits and then we will do uh, what we can to then transition folks into specialized industry specialized work unionized work but uh, in my work i argue that you know folks in the job guarantee certainly can and should unionize to um uh, lobby for their own conditions and advocate for their own, um, yeah, uh, working conditions. All right. So, so say this election, Biden, uh, we win back the Senate, we win uh, the presidency, you know, knock on wood, hopefully, who knows at this point. Uh, <laughs> wait, who, who, who do we, who do we need to lobby? Well, I mean, certainly, I mean, we certainly have to lobby the president and members of, uh, of Congress. I always like that line from uh, FDR, you know, make me do it. Yeah. And um, what FDR had accomplished in a few short years was the result of years of uh, um, community building, of advocacy, of activism, you know, of coalition building. And so I think that that has been to some degree happening on uh, in the background. And I, mm -hmm. and I think that uh, that um, that powerful force needs to exert pressure on certainly on the president to uh, put in place these programs. I think that we are slowly embracing the direct job creation solution. 
What I am a little more concerned about is that suppose we have uh, Biden presidencies and we presidency and we do embark on a two trillion dollar green infrastructure investment uh, program, and that's all well and good, and we do a whole lot of things that are uh, good for working people. If we don't also put in place a job guarantee, I worry that we will have you know a decade of robust, strong growth, kind of like the golden, the new golden age, the way we had one after uh, World War II. But then if we don't put in place the employment safety net, little by little, there will always be folks who will be left out of work. And they, that will always be folks on the margins. There will be people of color. Those will be um, you know, young folks. And if we accept an economy that does not guarantee jobs for all, we are at the same time asking the question, who should be the people that don't have those jobs? And we want to end once and for all, or to the best of our ability, this kind of cruel game of uh, musical chairs. Fascinating book. Um, I think this is the time. If there's any time to be talking about this, it is this moment. It is The Case for a Job Guarantee by Pavlina Cherneva. Uh, thank you for writing this. Thank you for coming on. And, and hopefully, uh, you know, after the new year in February, we can have a conversation about next steps. Thank you, Naomi. It was great uh, to be uh, Nomiki, to be on your show. Thanks, Pavlina. Take care. Up next, we have our panel talking about today's news. Uh, we have Akilah Lacey and Napoleon de Legend, the notorious Napoleon de Legend. That is up next on the Nomiki Show. Welcome back to the Nomiki Show. I'm excited about our next panel. We have reoccurring... <laughs> <laughs> TNS guest, Napoleon DeLegend, uh, you know him from the Michael Brooks show. Uh, he, of course, is a musician. He's an Afrobeat hip-hop artist. Uh, his, he's a Brooklyn-based artist, of course, and his uh, his song Black Privilege led to his being featured in the Essence Festival, Festival in 2017. Welcome back. And then we have Akilah Lacey. She's a politics reporter with The Intercept. Uh, she covers politics. I'm sure you guys have read her pieces. She's fun on Twitter. Thanks for joining the show. Thanks for hey, having me. Thanks for having me. So today, I mean, this is our first day back um, from the weekend. We we start our show on Tuesdays, and of course, uh, RBG passed away uh, on Friday, and the entire it's like it's like there was a, a shift, a seismic shift, like there was a massive earthquake um, in terms of maybe the course of history. And while I think a lot of us are rightfully thinking about the future course of history, uh, we shouldn't forget that it. it she delivered, helped deliver a vote on Roe v. Wade, or not, excuse me, um, she stood for Roe v. Wade, uh, and then she was there, you know, fighting for a woman's right to choose, and of course, she herself being an advocate for women. Um, now, Trump, of course, wants to, has said that he wants to appoint a judge that is a woman who is of a much more conservative background, and it looks like that judge, based on the vote count right now, um, potential vote count right now, will be brought forward. So um, I, I just want to start off, uh, maybe Achille, you're, you're a, a reporter, you, you cover politics. What, is it, what does it seem like, I mean, how can Democrats, progressives, anybody who is, is in opposition to whoever Trump nominates, if it's a woman, a conservative woman, how do they challenge this choice without going down a rabbit hole, which basically divides us as we lead up to an election, meaning you know, a conservative woman via versus a conservative Brett Kavanaugh. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of hard for people to not feel hopeless because we watched something very similar to this happen um, in 2016, and obviously Merrick Garland was not allowed to move forward. And so, when you're talking about you know how women are going to feel just because there's a wanting to like you know fuel further divisiveness when this is arguably the most you know important election in our lifetime i think it's important to re- remember the facts that are at stake here that even if trump picks a woman that woman could very well be someone like amy coney barrett who's at the top of the list right now who has been very clear that she's in favor of introducing further restrictions which is you know of course there's partisan there's a partisan aspect to that issue but at the end of the day um particularly when we're in a, such an unstable social environment um women and families should be able to make decisions about how they want to plan or or you know bring people into the world that we're currently living in and that shouldn't be a partisan issue but i think if people can stay to talking about those issues and and educating people around them, you know, encouraging people to vote, which is the lowest bar that you could possibly do right now. Um, but keeping that in mind, that, that what's at stake is actually not a political issue. It's an issue. I feel that we're losing you a little bit. Um, that, so maybe we can work on that when we go to the next question. But uh, Napoleon, you know, I think she, what she just said, Akilah just said, in terms of this is really about something much more. Um, today is National Voter Registration Day, and and I started off my opening. I basically scrapped what I was thinking initially, and I, I just wanted to talk about the importance of a vote as a tool, as a weapon against fascism right now. And, you know, in the last few days, it, we suddenly went from potentially winning this election based on a wave uh, with conservative uh, centrist Republicans to now being in a situation where it's about excitement. And if we get close, the, the courts could decide our election. Um, I mean, how are you taking this? Like, when you when you talk to, to, to activists out there and, and they're rightfully frustrated, how, how are you able to message that it's, it's about the Supreme Court, it's about the future, it's about preservation of, of our current rights? I mean, what are you thinking? Well... I think the the fact uh, uh, her death also like reminds us that it is about you know judges are so important and they have to factor into that decision and there's the down ballot and everything like that and I often think that a lot of the people that I speak to they they you they usually minimize their elections to just the presidential candidates so it's like and they want to you know they they want to be in love with who they vote for but it's not really what this it's not really how it works and that's not really what it's about. And um, it's it's an easy thing to do to vote. Like we have the right to vote. You know, we, we should definitely. That's it's like the the minimum of what we should do. And what I think about our, our RGB, uh, RBG. I always get these uh, um, <laughs> uh, confused in my head. Is that it's the same way they they they, rep, they weaponize people like by race and everything like that. Where they'll take somebody like a Tim Scott or they'll take a Candace Owens and they'll be like, look, there's black people that feel like that. So they're gonna use a woman and in order to try to like overturn Roe v. Wade. And it's it's, it's a very insidious tactic, but very smart on their part, you know? Yeah, that's 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 smart. It's like, it all comes down to tactics and, and, and there's so much to fight right now that we have to be strategic about what we fight at what times. And I think that does come back to the vote. It's like, okay, we may not like Biden. I'm sure none of us here do love him in any way, but the tactic is to fight off 
the potential of more rights being stripped away from us. Um, we have a housing crisis that we're in the midst of, and we don't even really have a sense of the numbers right now because uh, there's there's eviction moratoriums across this country, um, state by state, and also there's a federal one. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> entrepreneurs, they like to see an opportunity wherever they can. Um, the gig economy found a new market in evictions. Uh, in case you forgot that our commodified housing system and the exploitation of workforce go hand in hand. Yesterday, Vice ran an article about the rise of a company called Civil, which touts the opportunity to work on ev an eviction crew as the fastest money-making gig due to COVID. As people around the country face housing insecurity with no real aid from the government, other people facing economic hardship now have a chance to find work evicting them. Just to put this in perspective, uh, there was a story done a few days ago on, on New Yorkers being evicted um, or leaving their houses, I mean, evicted for reasons that they can, you know, th there was a, a little slice of time where uh, New York reached their deadline and the federal eviction uh, did not, CDC hadn't ruled on that yet. And people were out on the streets bringing friends to protect their items out on the streets from other people coming in and taking them because companies go into your the homes and just pull the stuff out and put it on the streets. Akilah, like, what, is there anything, is there any real effort being made right now at a local level by lawmakers, Democratic lawmakers that you know of to protect folks, uh, to, to make sure that there is an actual cancellation of rent because people are either going to be evicted because there's a deadline or they're evicted because they're twenty, thirty thousand dollars potentially late on their rent. Thank you. Uh, as far as canceling rent, uh, no, there's no indication uh, to my knowledge that that is like a valid. Oh, is it is it still cutting out a little bit? A little bit. It's OK. Keep, keep going. Keep going. OK. Um, there's no indication to me that there is like a viable proposal to actually make that happen, um, you know, anywhere locally. Some uh, states have have made the decision to put a moratorium on evictions, but we're still seeing people like on a on an individual case by case basis being threatened by their landlords or, or being being evicted anyway. Um, so, I mean, I've been covering the, the housing uh protest in Philly that's going on with the homeless encampments there. Um, and local officials are working to try to get immediate housing for the people in those camps. But they've been in conversations for the last few months that haven't really been going anywhere um, and, you know, pr proposing plans that don't necessarily address the issue of where are they going to house these 120 people tomorrow if they do end up evicting the camps. Um, so it's it's unfortunate. You kind of people are talking past each other and saying that they're trying to work with advocates, but they're actually proposing things that don't really get to the core issue, which is people are a facing immediate evictions and, you know, on a on a nightly basis, do not have a place to go, um, particularly because shelters have been at capacity and also unsafe um, in the pandemic. Unsafe on the pandemic because folks have to be um, held in, in these shelters. And I mean, in New York, I can only speak to New York, but they're being pulled out of shelters and moved to different locations because you have folks in progressive neighborhoods who don't want shelters in their own neighborhoods. I mean, this is the Upper West Side conundrum. Uh, Napoleon, I mean, how how are activists like why is that? Why do you think the activism is not working right now? I mean, you talk about strategy all the time. I love these conversations we have, but Folks are showing up on the streets. Folks are protesting their Democratic lawmakers. 
folks are trying to influence the progressive senators and, and, and legislatures around the country, and yet we're frozen. Nothing's happening. I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a it's a system of the it's, it's a symptom of the of the system that that, we, that we're living in. It's like I, I think that this the whole system has to be have to be relooked and overhauled because, especially when you think about a business like civil, when these types of businesses start popping up and start thriving, I think it's time to like we have to really sound the alarm. Like there's something like truly wrong, and it's, it reminds me of like the the payday loan type businesses. You know, they they suck the blood out of the most destitute people in the society we live in. And and, um, just the fact that, I mean, when are the stimulus, the the second round of stimulus checks coming? Like, we need that at the very least. And um, I think think the Democratic Party, you know, has to step up to the plate. But uh, they seem to, to be so beholden by their donors that, you know, none of this necessary action is taking place. And and them helping out and doing something would um, would would actually excite some voters to want to vote them in even more. And and I think I think it's like it's like a full circle. That's the whole problem is just like they're not listening. <laughs> like there's a problem and uh, the people in positions are not listening to us. Yeah, I mean, it's like you said, it comes down to to, to donors, but on the alternate side, it's like how much public pressure is it going to take? How many people need to show up on the streets? How many phone calls do you have to make for them to actually move? And they're frozen, like you said, they're frozen because of their donors who, you know, they've relied on to get elected. And there's only so many progressives in office. So another story um, just showing how how frustrated folks are getting. Uh, Healthcare workers are on strike in Chicago right now. On Saturday, 800 nurses from the Illinois Nurses Association went on strike at the University of Illinois Chicago Hospital, marking the first such strike action taken by UIC members of the group in 46 years. These healthcare workers organized the action in order to win adequate staffing levels, decent wages, and adequate PPE in Illinois, a state controlled by Democrats. We have two big takeaway here. takeaways here. One, the gutting of our healthcare system under neoliberal leadership was always in danger. But in the context of a pandemic, it could spell out far more widespread suffering. Years of bipartisan refusal to fully fund supplies and facilities before COVID for the healthcare workers, to pay those workers non-poverty wages, and to create enough of these jobs for fully staffed ships have gotten us here. The leads, um, this leads us to our next takeaway, which is when healthcare's win, we win. When these workers are given enough shifts to make a decent living and support their coworkers in the job, we make sure that no patient has to wait for care. So COVID exacerbated partially the, the crisis in this country caused by Trump, facilitated by neoliberals. And it's it's amazing to see these healthcare workers organize. Akila, I mean, do you see any other stuff like this happening around the country where where workers are organizing and pushing back against the systemic issues that have gotten us to this point? Absolutely, yeah, and particularly among nurses. I mean, we, we've we covered, um, there were some several nurses at hospitals in California that were, um, you know, and in, and in New York that were basically like whistleblowing about conditions in the hospital, being not given access to, to PPE, being asked to reuse masks, 
um, when they had when they were aware of, of additional supplies at the hospital, um, putting them being forced to put themselves and their patients at risk. Actually, a colleague of mine, Matthew Cunningham Cook, reported last week that in um, North Carolina, 1,800 nurses in Asheville won the first the state's first um, union at a private hospital ever, um, and this they they ended up joining National Nurses United. So we are definitely seeing even you know when Congress has you know Congress's inability to to address this issue um, hasn't stopped people from continuing to to try to use people power to to bring bring these issues to the forefront, but also uh, bargain for for power for themselves in the workplace. Um, and so we're seeing that over and over again, even even on smaller scales, like it, it's being replicated, you know, from coast to coast, which is sad that that we're putting people in this position where they have to risk their employment or their their status to to be able to bargain for those rights but they are winning um in a lot of them and as as we're seeing in in you know as with the ongoing protests and and discussing issues of police brutality when lawmakers aren't responding what continues to put pressure on them is the fact that people are in the streets or you know people are continuing to organize so it's always coming back to that that like when everyone has given up individuals are, are the ones continuing to to do the work and it really does come, I mean, the power of a strike. So on one hand, you have folks showing up in the streets, making phone calls. Sometimes that pressures folks, sometimes it doesn't. But when you have a union that decides strategically to strike, which is a huge decision, I mean, this, this hasn't happened in 46 years uh, in Illinois, uh, that's what gets people to fold. So Napoleon, I mean, wh- obviously unions have been weakened in the last 40 years. Um, but strategically, I mean, where, where, where do you think we are not pushing far enough well i think it, it it that should be another point that that the democrats could use like for the election it's like get behind movement movements like that highlight movements like that to show that look uh this is this could only be this will only get worse and this has happened and also i mean they probably they i don't know maybe they think that it happened under their watch too because they, 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 the fact that it was underfunded is, is, is a part of the problem of the whole system. But we need to go back to planning the, the economy. Something like healthcare has to be, I don't think it could work being a privatized system efficiently mm-hmm. anyways. And it's been proven not to work. And it's great to see people are like rallying towards these causes. And it's gonna continue to happen because, and when people are, are, are stretched thin and have nothing le- left, they're just gonna, you know, take, like, take it to the streets and, and just like, look, I don't wanna work in these conditions anymore. But I think it's an opportunity, once again, that's missed for the people higher up in the, and for, for the Biden campaign and everything and people that are running to excite people and to show people that we are for you and we are behind you. And in, in the words of Harvey K., you know, let's make uh, let's make America radical again. And, and, and by by just taking taking our own power and really, really put pressure on these people to tell them that, look, the way the status quo is just hasn't worked and COVID only made it worse. That's right. But that ultimately brings back to the original point, which is, so if they're not, if they're unwilling, you have these movements all around, you have unions that support Democrats and support neoliberals because they're depending on funding and budgets, you know, pieces of budgets. But you have teachers across the country threatening to strike, delaying openings in New York, um, you know, fighting back, not showing up to work because they're afraid that, you know, if they're afraid for their own health, they're afraid for their community's health. But Democrats are still frozen. 
But, I mean, listen, Bill de Blasio supported Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, fought. Uh, he, he's a self-declared DSA member. Um, <laughs> he himself can't even move on this issue um, and as well as fight, you know, police unions. But, Akilah, like, these are progressive hubs. And if we can't make that kind of progress, and it takes an extraordinary amount of organizing and political exercise for unions to even stand up to the to the lawmakers that they helped elect. What's going to happen? I mean, it, I think to Napoleon's point, like if Democrats can't campaign around this type of organizing, where does that leave us in this election? I mean, there's a great opportunity to, to capture this moment and it's not being captured. Well, I think it's interesting because I think so, so some Democrats that actually believe in this stuff, you know, like some of the like, you know, AOC and, and members in that cohort kind of and new newly elected members of Congress have kind of campaigned around this. And we see Democrats mir mirroring this, but actually not having any plans to follow through on promises made to those constituencies. So it's 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 frustrating because you're you're seeing people actually who have been disengaged from the political process coming being drawn back in by the right. promise of you know we're going to follow through because you followed through for us and then being forced to wait over and over again and so i think you know it's a question of like how much this is going i, I think it's you know on the one hand, people are wondering how much is this going to impact non-voters or you know in two thousand in two thousand twenty, but also um, it, it, people if they end up getting another four years of Trump, like the party is is on moving towards a serious fracturing, um, and and there's no sense of like what that's going to look like, but. Um, we're already seeing it play out in the halls of Congress, both between, you know, within the Democratic Party and then obviously between the GOP and the Democrats to the point where not only can there be no bipartisan movement on this stuff, but even within the parties, there's intense discord and dissatisfaction with what they are actually able to get done, which is actually very little in the scheme of things. Um, so I think the bottom line is voters are going to stop giving they're going to stop donating their time and money and energy and whether they put that into a different party is is the democrats issue to to be concerned with at this point the point i mean you you said something really about funding right so in new york city right so you've got congress you've got you've got a squad of of of, of folks who've been elected now beyond the original squad who are not dependent on corporate funding. They're not dependent on any sort of um, lobbyist money, whatever it is. Um, it's all individuals who've made up their election. That's how they got to Congress. So they're not beholden to anybody. But in cities, you have progressives, actual progressives. I can only speak to New York, which I know pretty well. You have actual progressives who are unwilling, some of whom aren't even dependent on that money, who are unwilling to fight police unions because they're afraid, the fear that police unions have pushed on, on folks or they're unwilling to champion certain education measures because, you know, maybe a machine brought them into office and they don't want to challenge. So how do we get past? I mean, you, you come, like your background is so much in organizing and uniting. I mean, where you're from, like the corporate, you know, the corporate system is always trying to, to, to pressure whoever's in power to prevent any progress. Right. How do we pressure these guys who are supposed to be on our side to do something, to actually have the courage? Well, it has to be a, 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 either you're you're for the people and you're with the people, uh, or or a, either you know we're not going to support you anymore because they're, they're going to have to grow some cojones. You know, it's like you you, you you're going to have to. It, it, it's like 
the future is is with that funding where like people are funding the politicians and the parties. It's not where the with with, with, with the donors. I believe. I, I believe. Like I'm talking about more long term, and uh, I also I, I think they're probably. I don't want to say fake progressives because I, I I don't know them. You know what I'm saying? I don't know what what, what they're thinking or anything like that. But if if you're for the cause, you're supposed to move on these issues. Or you can't even call yourself a progressive. You know what I'm saying? Because it's clear cut. What we want is like is very simple. It's not complicated. So we don't have to jump through hoops. If you start to jump through hoops, you're gonna feel like you're playing politics, and you're actually just trying to be accepted by these guys. You know, with by, by the large donor people instead of really being com- coming in for what what you said you were gonna come in for. Right. I mean, that's the big lesson here. So on one hand, we have this the seismic moment. Um, where history could be shifted, our rights could be shifted, everything. Um, on the other hand, we have to pay attention to the local fights. And and at the top of the show, um, we're just coming out of the majority report we talked about specifically, like if you want to use your energy wisely, if you don't want to invest in making calls for Biden, so be it. Focus on those local races. Focus on the challengers to those who are not showing up despite the fact that they promised to do so. Um, Napoleon the Legend, thank you for joining. Akil Lacey from The Intercept, thank you for joining. Uh, hope to have you on again very soon. And thank you to everybody. Uh, your patience today. This is our first day back in studio after being on the road. So thank you for your patience at the top of the show. Uh, we have a really great show tomorrow. You want to stick around 3 o'clock Eastern to 4 o'clock. And special thanks to Harvey K. Speaking of Harvey K, uh, who is in the chat for, for, for gearing up those likes and to our, our why for the super chat. And of course, to our moderators, Bob the Mod and Billy Big Bricks for the chat, keeping the chat room honest. Tough times. I gotta say, last time in 2016, I hate this, I hate that this is a pattern now. This was the toughest part of the race. Getting progressives to like see was on, I mean, not everybody's on the same side. We're all fighting with each other. But ultimately, I mean, I believe that that's how fascism wins. They want to divide and conquer us. And it's a really tough time for all of us to have these conversations. So I'm, I'm grateful to you all for being honest. Um, for being willing to have these conversations and to everybody in the chat right now. It's cool to debate. We got to debate this stuff out. So keep it coming. Keep it coming. All right. Thank you all. And we'll see you tomorrow. 